Hello and welcome to the Penguin Podcast. I'm Richard E. Grant, and in today's episode, I'm joined by the celebrated author Louis de Bernier, who's going to tell me about his latest novel, The Dust That Falls from Dreams, an epic tale of love and war. Louis, welcome. Thank you very much. Louis, you made your name internationally with the best-selling Captain Corelli's Mandolin, a love story set on a Greek island against the backdrop of the Second World War. But in this, your most recent novel and another love story, you've moved the setting to England and the First World War. What made you decide to set The Dust That Falls From Dreams closer to home? It was in the nature of the tale from the first place. It, it originates in two things. One was that my grandmother's fiancé was killed in 1915 and she never really got over it and it had the effect of warping our family history. The other thing is that the man she married, my grandfather, he disappeared after the Second World War and we had absolutely no idea where he was or anything. And then finally, he reappeared dead at the age of 96 in the Rocky Mountains in Canada. So I went to Canada to find out about him, you know, to find out what his story was. Mm -hmm. And... um, it was really very interesting and quite different from my grandmother's version. And um, that this is what gave me the idea for um, a, well, a family saga. I'm hoping to finish this book in, you know, in three volumes and take it up to 1980. But I, I want them to be readable separately so you don't feel you had to read all of them. So this, not the gestation of this has been very, very long. The gestation has been very long. I've been collecting material and reading for all that time, but the actual writing of this book was about three years. Three years. So the dust that falls from dreams tells the stories of three families who find themselves caught up in the war. Do you mind setting the scene up for us? Okay, three houses on Court Road in Eltham, which back then was in Kent. They're solid, sort of bourgeois, prosperous houses just opposite to Eltham Palace. And I have three families living side by side. In the middle are the McCoshes, a father who's a bit like Mr. Bennett, you know, yes. and, and a slightly daft and uh, wacky mother. And four daughters, Christabel, Ottilie and Sophie and Rosie. And they've got childhood friends on either side of their house. In fact, two of the gardens are connected by a blue door. And um, on one side are some American boys. Uh, their dad's in shipping. On the other side is a family that's half French, Daniel Pitt and his, his brother Archie and their mother. And the other family of the Pendennis family? Yeah, the American family of the Pendennises, mm-hmm. yeah. And so the children of the families call themselves the Pals. Let's meet them now in a clip from the audiobook, which is read by both David Sibley and Avita Jay. And in this clip, we're hearing David Sibley. On the other side of the blue door dwelt the Pendennis family, recently arrived from Baltimore, complete with three young sons, Sidney, Albert and Ashbridge, all born a year apart, and each of the younger exactly six inches shorter than his immediate elder, so that they reminded some people of a set of library steps. Every morning these boys shook their father's hand when they came down to breakfast and addressed him as Sir. The McCosh family had four daughters. Blue-eyed Rosie, with her long, rich chestnut hair and fair skin, peppered with freckles. Then Christabel, an English rose in the making, tall and athletic. Then there was Ottilie, who was clearly going to be of the traditional English pear shape, with a pale, round face and lovely, dark, round eyes set beneath a sweet, dark fringe. Lastly, there was Sophie, 
little, thin and ungainly, with uncontrollable frizzy hair whose humour and manner of speech were already becoming quirky. Her father liked to say that she had a lopsided view of the world and that it would stand her in good stead. Whilst it would be true to say that these girls deeply loved their difficult mother, it would also be true to say that they adored their easy-going father. On the opposing garden wall there was no blue door, so the two boys who played in the garden beyond it would arrive simply by climbing over and leaping down. They'd worn a hard, flat patch in the rose bed. The wall was seven foot high, and it was already clear that Archie Pitt and his younger brother Daniel were going to grow up into a pair of daredevils and adventurers. So, Louis, how much were you influenced by Pride and Prejudice, Mr and Mrs Bennett and the Daughters? I didn't realise that I was influenced until um, the book was already published. <laughs> I had absolutely By no osmosis. <laughs> and what was your response? I thought, oh, yes. Oh, yes. <laughs> oh, yes. Because yes. I've always loved Pride and Prejudice. It's my favourite of the Jane Austen novels. I think of it as intertextuality. Intertextuality. I think that's a marvellous description. Now, this is the cue to move on to your first object that you brought in, which is your grandmother's diary. Presumably this is connected to the novel's rather unusual dedication. Well, this is my great-grandmother's diary. So my grandmother's mother, she kept a diary scrupulously every day from the 1870s up until about 1940, believe it or not. The entries are very sparse and she, she always records the weather, which turned out to be quite useful. And I, I was able to reconstruct from people's random activities more or less um, the chronology of what happened in my family. My great-grandmother was obviously an emotional woman who didn't like to express it very much. For example, she put, when her husband died, she put, yeah. you know, poor Alec died in my arms today. And that's, that's, all, that's all you get. But every day for years afterwards, she goes to his grave. Gosh. My great-grandmother was quite a character. She'd had a scandalous affair with Lord Dunmore for several years, and those are the only diaries that are missing, because I think my grandmother threw them out. Two salations. <laughs> How did your grandmother talk about her mother? Well, unfortunately, I, I don't really remember it. I've only got my father's version of his grandmother, if you see what I mean. Mm -hmm. I don't remember talking to my grandmother about her mother. For example, she, she caused a scandal in Elton by playing tennis when she was heavily pregnant. <laughs> Outrageous. <laughs> Terrible behaviour. Yes. Goodness me. Call him, please. <laughs> yes. And we have a wonderful family portrait of her as a young woman. She, she was very, very attractive. So was it via this diary that you began unearthing the history of your family and their part in the war? Yes, but having said that, I realised that, you know, the idea wasn't to write a family history, it was to write fiction, so I've told as many big fat lies as I want. The point wasn't to tell... The, when you're writing a novel, it's nothing to do with the truth, it's to do with metaphorical truth or virtual truth or poetic truth. So do you... So my, my grandmother didn't have three sisters... So why did you decide to give her three sisters? Unconscious plagiarism. Unconscious. <laughs> Intertextualising, as you <laughs> call it. Intertextuality. So what you said, that your grandmother's fiancé was killed in action in 1915 and the dust that falls from dreams is dedicated to him. Yeah. Um, in which you said, if not for his death, I would have had no life. So you're obviously you know, hugely interested and compelled by how historical events change the course of individual lives. And is that essentially the springboard of, of your fiction? Yeah, it's the springboard of everything I do. I'm interested in what happens to little people 
when things happen that are beyond their power. But like Thomas Hardy, I mean, he's one of my favourite writers. He writes about unimportant people caught up in difficult events. But you're not as bleak as he is. I think philosophically I'm very similar to him. I mean, he was a great fan of Schopenhauer, the pessimist, and mm-hmm. so am I. He's my favourite philosopher. I so quite, are you I, misery guts? Do you sort of feel no, that your no, glass no. is a quarter full? I'm not life? at all. I'm very jovial and very sociable. But I, th- I think if you're a pessimist, you're not really going to be phased or disappointed by anything, are you? <laughs> and do you and think it's you're a good way to like be that? happy. Do you think that this is in your DNA, that that's what you're predisposed or marked with from birth? Or do you think circumstances have made you like that in your life? I think it was adolescence that did it to me. It, it, it was that intense, um, that intense romantic and sexual longing that was never satisfied and um, the feeling that you'd sort of grown up but life hadn't started yet and what's the point of it? And I lost my religious faith, which is a great incentive to pessimism. Mm-hmm. Obviously, people with a religious faith live in a universe full of meaning. If you don't have God, you've got to make your own meaning and that's much harder work. Now, you, I'm intrigued by what you've said, that you were admiring of the fact that your great-grandmother kept a diary throughout her life. Mm-hmm. Do you keep a diary? I don't keep a diary, no. I, I have occasionally tried it. In my early 30s, I tried to write a secret diary, so I wrote it in runes. And uh, now I can't read it. <laughs> <laughs> You're an unusual young man. So look at your grandmother's diary now. In the novel, you use different narrative perspectives and include diary, extracts, poems and letters... Why do you decide to tell a story using a number of different voices? I've always done that, and I've got more and more keen on that as I've got older. I, I, I really enjoy writing from different perspectives. It's a kind of ventriloquism. I find that books written entirely from God's point of view or from the, you know, the, the omniscient narrator, mm-hmm. I, I, I get a little bored with them. So it's what, going back to what you said earlier about the fact that your grandmother's version of what life was differed very much from what your grandfather said about the same things. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Yes, and I had to figure out some sort of middle ground. Or, or in these situations where strong emotions are involved, it, it's usually the case that both people are right. They may seem opposite, but they're telling what, in combination, well, they, 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 you they get actually, to a truth. They're actually narrating the same events, but from a different point of view. And I remember when I started out as a school teacher, we used to force the kids to write what we called OPVs, if you've heard of those, OPVs. other points of view. Other points of view, okay. So I'd, I'd say, you know, I want you to write this story from the point of view of the postman and then, then write it from the point of view of the dog. <laughs> you know, and having forced it on, having forced it on school children in my time, yes. it's actually rather a good way of writing novels too. Perfect. Because people must ask you all the time, how do you write a novel? And is that one of the answers that you give? I say, look into some postmodernist theory and go from there. Yes, as you do. I do the, get studied uh, as a postmodern writer in universities, oddly enough. But my, yeah. my postmodernism is, is, ju- is just f- nicking all their best ideas and forgetting about all the rubbish. Intertextualising, as I think you called it. <laughs> We've already met the protagonists of the novel as children, mm. welcoming in the Edwardian era, or do you say Edwardian? Um, my grandmother used to say Edwardian. Edwardian, yeah. Yes, but, uh, but I say Edwardian. We'll say Edwardian for now. So as we know, this golden age was very short-lived and the shadow of war was soon looming on the horizon, the consequences of which the pals have to deal with, as we'll hear in this clip from the audiobook, again read by David Sibley. To all appearances, the new king had brought with him a relaxed love of the good things in life. People flocked to the races because he was often there, 
and the whole nation rejoiced when his horse Minoru won the derby in 1909. Witty, popular and shrewd though he was, in private the merry monarch still fell into deep fits of gloom. He was a peacemaker but saw all about him disintegration and the prospect of chaos. He contemplated abdication and was growing ever more convinced that the monarchy would not survive to see his grandson on the throne. He had personally succeeded in creating the Entente Cordiale with France, repairing the diplomatic damage done by the South African War, but it was impossible to ignore the Nero-esque antics of his nephew in Germany, the all-highest and admiral of the Atlantic. Sandwiched between France and Russia, and fearful of them both, the Kaiser had long resolved to knock out France with one titanic blow and then turn on Russia and crush her too. The easiest way to deal with France was to invade it through two neutral countries, Luxembourg and Belgium. He was convinced that Britain would not honour its treaty obligations to defend Belgium. It was, after all, a mere scrap of paper, and his mother was King Edward's favourite sister. Germans in the know began to make toasts to Der Tag. General von Moltke was later to remark that one's battle plans survive exactly up to that point when one makes contact with the enemy. King Edward brought his brief and beautiful age to an end on the 6th day of May in 1910. Prostrated by bronchitis but smoking cigars to the very end that they had been hastening, he learned from the Prince of Wales that his horse, Witch of the Air, had won at Kempton. I'm very glad, he said, and his servants put him to bed. I shan't give in, he said. I'm going to fight it. But he fell into a coma and died at the imminence of midnight. Thus, it was left to King George to deal with what his father had foreseen, and to Rosie, Christabel, Ottilie, Sophie, Sidney, Albert, Archie, Daniel, and Ashbridge. Louis, the fiancé of the dedication, Private Howell Ashbridge Godby, shares a name, regiment, and place, date, and manner of death with the Ashbridge of the novel. Now, do you think it's fair to say that your family have always been obsessed with their own history? Yes, oddly enough, we have. We're quite lucky in the sense of, you know, if you're dirt bernier, it means you're minor aristocracy, and it's very, very easy to trace arist aristocracy. It's much harder if your name is, you know, Jones or Morgan. So um, the earliest de Bernier that we know of came over with William the Conqueror and had an argument with him about some land in East Anglia. So obviously you don't argue with the king, so he went back to Normandy. So we, I know bits and pieces of the family history ever since then, on the de Bernier side anyway. My mother's side, I, I can't go back quite so far, but her family really were the clever ones. Like her, her grandfather was a nuclear physicist. So you come from a long line of big brains, is what you're saying. Um, I'm implying it. You are implying yeah. it. OK. <laughs> Moving swiftly on to your next object, the classical guitar. Why have you brought this along today? Well, this isn't really a classical guitar. I, I always... I stand corrected. No, well, no, 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 don't be corrected. Um, the thing is... I do have classical guitars, which I love, but I, I, I got to the point where I wanted um, a, something that played like a guitar but sounded like a lute. And 
really the only way to get one was to make it myself. So I made it myself. And, and I, I As lo- you do. I love it so much. You just knocked one up, did you? I just knocked one up in Saison. In fact, a lot of the wood came out of the garden. How long did it take you to make? Probably a couple of months. But you are waiting for glue to dry a lot of the time. Does playing your guitar help you, or your guitar lute, as you call it, to meditate on the novel and its characters? Or is that too fancy? I think playing a musical instrument is, is my first rampart against insanity. If I couldn't play the guitar or some other instrument, I, w- I really would go quite bonkers very quickly. I, I need it to calm me down and to uh, even me out. I also get a tremendous amount of aesthetic pleasure from music. I sort of feel it in my body. And do you get as much pleasure from listening to recordings of music or is it in the actual playing of it that you get this satisfaction? I play more music than I listen to. Mm-hmm. But the, 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 do you compose the, the, music as well? Well, I wrote a lot of songs in my 20s and I've just recently been digging them out to see if they were any good. And? and I, well, actually, with a bit of work, they are. The trouble with composing classical music is that the possibilities are just infinite, you know, that the way the, the directions of melody can go, there mm-hmm. are so many. Which do you take? It, it's, it's like being in a maze or being faced with 20 forks in the road with every note. But do you feel the same predicament when you're writing? I don't feel that when I'm writing because when I'm writing, it's a bit like watching the rushes of a film. Mm-hmm. You watch, you play the scene over and over again in different versions in your imagination. And I, I can see it. I can yeah. see it. It's just there, you know. And I, I hear the voices and smell the smells. And I really, I think of it as describing what I see. And, and what I write is my description of the best of the rushes. So what, do you, what are the similarities you think there are between music and writing? That I need both of them to stay sane. That's mm-hmm. the most important thing for me. So there's um, no day that goes by in the Debanier household where there's not either writing or music taking place? Well, there's always both, but both. obviously not at the same time. Right. So do you, have you ever suffered from the dreaded light, uh, writer's block? No, I don't do writer's block. I think that's um, th- that comes about when you sit down to write when you haven't got anything to say. And has that ever happened to you, Louis? No, because, because I, if i got nothing to say, I go shopping or play golf or play the guitar. <laughs> my, my friend Elizabeth Jane Howard used to sit, in front, sit up at her desk every morning and try to write all morning, and it, it just made her desperate with anxiety. So you don't have a routine like, like she did? No, no, absolutely not. But I, you have I, written a great big chunk of a book, and this is one of three. No, the secret of artistic success is to be obsessive, not disciplined. Okay. I don't do discipline, I do, I do obsession. Well, then try and outline how this obsession manifests itself on a daily basis. Okay. Things niggle at you until until you just have to get them down. So, uh, for example, uh, there's, a, there's a scene I, I want to write about um, my character Daniel Pitt uh, contemplating suicide at Beachy Head. And I, I keep going, this keeps going through my mind and I keep dreaming about it. And when it's as ripe as a tomato, I'll sit down and write it. So you wait for the, the inspiration comes and then you finally mm. comes to a point where you can't not write it. Exactly, yeah. So how do you cope with publishers and agents who are demanding deadlines of when this inspiration has to meet a particular date for that amount of money? Well, they say I'm very awkward. Oh, do they? <laughs> do you agree with them? I don't know. Somebody told me recently that I was extremely awkward and it had never occurred to me in all my life, but I suppose I might be. 
But if, if you're a literary writer, you don't usually have deadlines. Mm -hmm. So when you say that other people say that you're awkward, did you have that on your school reports? Louis, an awkward child. I had Long all pause. the usual stuff, you know, the sort of must try harder and... But never awkward. Brilliant at English, terrible at maths. Yes, ditto, same thing. Martin made best-selling novel to my name. Yet, the novel has far-ranging locations as the Powells find themselves scattered across the Western Front and beyond. Now, from a cosy house tucked away in a quiet street in Kent, we're taken into the heart of the trenches and the parts of the novel that describe the fighting are extremely moving to read. Were they equally difficult and moving, if you can say, to write? They weren't too difficult to write because I have the man's diaries. I have the original diaries and my grandmother also copied out what he'd written along with the best bits from his love letters, which he wrote when he was there. So they were a very good basic resource. You know, like Paul Lampard got shot today. And uh, I read the regimental history of the Honourable Artillery Company and that's a blow-by-blow -blow account of absolutely everything that happened. And there was another book written by one of his comrades his name I've suddenly forgotten, but the book was called Mud and Khaki. And he was serving at the same time in the same place. So, so putting all those resources together, I managed to get a narrative out of it. Well, in this next clip from the audiobook of The Dust That Falls From Dreams, from the chapter The Sweet Red Wine of Youth, a group of soldiers bury their 19-year-old comrade. 5th of Feb. Moved at night, Lindenhauer where slept in barn near German lines. On guard and really splendid to see trees silhouetted against sky by German star shells. Last night a tenor in German lines sang Brahms's lullaby just as sun went down. So beautiful almost wept. Not a dry eye in trench. How sleep the dead. Had breakfast at Brazier. Tinned salmon, biscuits, jam, big pot of tea. Young lad from Croydon being Cooper's apprentice named Harold Rumthorpe. Can't say we were particular friends. War throws all kinds together, makes you comrades, not necessarily friends. H.R. was 19, six years younger than me, and I'm in shipping and he was tradesman. Don't know how he got in the H.A.C., wasn't exactly gentleman rancor. Probably came out with his gentleman like Hutch. Liked him, though never really had conversation. Just cursed, slogged along together. H.R. spotted captive balloon. We're trying to work out if one of ours, theirs. He stood up to get proper look. Moment of inadvertence, no chance to get to him quickly enough. Next second, Brazier kicked over and was spattered, glistening speckles red and white, and Harold fell in Hutch's arms. Hutch leaning back against parapet, repeating, Oh God, oh God. Took forty-five minutes to die. Pitiful noises enough to break heart. Bullet took off back of head, nowhere to lay him down in comfort. Orderly crawled over from next trench but couldn't do anything and couldn't get Harold out in plain view of enemy. Laid him on Paredes, and that night carried him back to ruined cottage and buried him in garden. Already five graves there, soldiers planted like vegetables against the day of harvest. Plenty bullets whizzing, Several times had to wait for clouds to roll back across moon and throw ourselves flat every star shell. Private who'd been ordained, recited burial service from memory, very loud and clear so Huns would hear us. 
Bosch tenor with beautiful voice responded, sang Brahms's lullaby again. Had to cry. Hutch made cross of sticks. Stark scene. Strangest and most powerful ever experienced in my life. Will haunt me, make me think thoughts almost too large. Harold Rumthorpe, apprentice Cooper of Croydon, farewell. Laid to rest by his brothers, sung to rest by a hun. Will always hear those words of the committal ringing out into the night. Man that is born of woman hath but a short time to live, and is full of misery. He cometh up and is cut down like a flower. He fleeth, as it were a shadow, and never continueth in one stay. There's a shared sense of humanity in there, the German soldier serenading his dead enemy across no man's land. I know that you want to read something from the diary. Well, yes. Just to give you an idea, because I mentioned star shells in that passage, for example. So here's what Howell said. Moved off at night to Lindenhow, where we stepped in a bar near the German lines. I was on guard, and it was really beautiful to see the trees, etc., silhouetted against the sky by star shells. Here I am, writing at about 9.45am. We expect to be shelled. Last night I think I got some good photos of star shells. We are just after a sniper now, and soon I shall have a shot myself. 11.30. Paul Lampard has been shot through the head as he was observing a rifle grenade fall. Oh. Your grandmother's autograph book is your next object and was one of her wartime possessions. Can you tell me about it? My grandmother, after her fiancé was killed, volunteered to go and work as a VAD, voluntary aid detachment, as a nurse, in other words, and she ended up in the military hospital in Southampton at Netley. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that most of the nurses did was collect autographs and cartoons from the wounded soldiers. And some of these entries in her autograph book are just absolutely beautiful. So soldiers drew their cap badges. They wrote little poems. Somebody wrote at the very end, you know, by hook or by crook, I'll be the last in this book. For example, somebody from a West Highland regiment drew a beautiful picture of a West Highland Terrier. God, beautiful. And where did, your, where did you find the book? I mean, was it something that your grandmother showed you herself? After my grandmother died, we found a lot of this stuff, and it's, it seems likely that she'd been reading uh, Howell's love letters before, just before she died, as a matter of fact. Yeah. So, I mean, this is not unlike the book that Rosie McCosh, the novel's main heroine, keeps when she's working as a nurse in a hospital. Yes, I lifted some of those entries straight out. Let's hear a clip from the audiobook, which describes the volumes of autographs collected by Rosie as she throws herself into her work in an attempt to forget her grief. On and on they went, the three volumes, the rhymes, cartoons, reflections, words of gratitude, some beautifully done, some semi-literate, all sincere. As her life went by, Rosie spent many hours alone with her autograph books, remembering the cheerful young men in the photographs, trying to picture those whose images had been slowly fading, admiring the immense talent of common soldiers from all over the empire who could paint immaculate pictures of flowers or dogs or bottles of whisky. To her, they remained as young and cheerful as they had been back then, frozen in time by fond memory, as old lovers are. These wounded young men, who had left traces of their spirit in ink and pencil, verse and adage, 
were signals of the time in her life when she had been doing the most important things it would ever befall her to do, when experience was most intense, when the immensity of her grief and exhaustion made the plasticity of the world shimmer before her eyes like the heat haze on a summer road, when the whole universe seemed to smell of carbolic and lysol and surgical spirit. The contribution to which she unfailingly returned was the entry by Private J.C. Grundy of the Argyle and Sutherland Highlanders who had taken a particular shine to her because she was half Scottish. On 9th of April 1918, he drew a picture of a young woman wearing a sun hat with a trug basket in the crook of her arm and a rake over her shoulder. Behind her was a picture of a steamer and a submarine, and from each corner of the page grew tufts of what looked like tropical fern. In the middle of these surreal juxtapositions he had written in tiny italic script, When the war is done we'll recall the fun, the fun that conquered the pain, for we'll owe a debt and we'll not forget to the jokes that kept us sane, how the wounded could laugh and bandy their chaff and kick up a deuce of a row. It may be in peace when the suffering cease. We'll be sadder, aye, sadder than now. Rosie learned these prophetic words by heart and hoped that for Private J.C. Grundy she too would remain forever young with chestnut hair on her head, freckles on her face and so much grief to cope with that she smothered it in work and kindliness and jokes. Louis, that the intensity of the emotions that are described there and recorded, do you feel that that, that is part of the attraction of war in your novels because everything is heightened compared to everyday life as we live it now? Yes, I think I think that is the case. Um, from the point of view of, of a writer well, a writer like me who likes strong narrative, you don't get any stronger narratives than the ones you get in wartime. So that's probably the literary attraction. Your next object is, again, about your love of music, and it's the CD player that you've brought in. How important is a CD player when you're writing? It's very, very important. I often write to music... I think that the rhythm of music affects the rhythm of your prose. Which which composers? Well, it depends very much. You know, when I was writing Captain Crelli's mandolin, I was listening to lots and lots of Greek and Italian music and masses of mandolin music. Beethoven, Hummel, Vivaldi, they all wrote for mandolin. So there's obviously enormous influence and importance of music in the novel. There's an ongoing soundtrack of wartime songs and tunes. So this is something that you've consciously put in there. I always have music in my books. Um, I always have quite a bit about food as well. The title of the novel, The Dust That Falls From Dreams, is very lyrical in itself. Please explain the story behind that. Well, the original... Uh, am I allowed to say anything obscene on this recording? Yes, of course. OK, well, the the original title was going to be Snafu, which is military slang, you know, situation normal, all fucked up. Yes. Which I thought was quite entertaining. My agent didn't like it. And then I realised that it didn't become military slang until the Second World War, so I couldn't use it. So I was looking around for a new title. And um, I have a friend who's a songwriter, and he's also 
a fabulously good acoustic guitar player, and that's Ralph McTell. Mm-hmm. I became friends with Ralph some time ago when I met him at the British Folk Awards, and um, he did a concert in Great Yarmouth and sent me a freebie. And I went along, and he played a song called Walk Out in the Morning. One of the lines is, I'm writing with my finger in the dust that falls from dreams. And I thought, my God. And I, I, I took him to the pub afterwards, and I said, please, can I have it? And he, he said yes. So I got the title in return for a pint of beer in Great Yarmouth. And he hasn't come after you for royalties? No, he was very chuffed. Good. That's, a, that's the kind of friend you want in life. So poetry, as well as music, is very important to the novel. And Rosie finds comfort in the pages of her poetry books and expresses her feelings in her own writing. How important is poetry to you, Louis, the Bernier? Well, it's, it was my first literary vocation. That's what I started off doing. But I had certain technical difficulties in that I was, I was because of the influence of modernism, where suddenly anything goes, I, I realised I no longer knew what a poem was. And a few years ago, I, I thought, right, I'm going to put the work in. And I, I studied metrics particularly because I was always worried about why my lines were a bit lumpy. Once I'd studied metrics, I really got going. And now I just poetry is just pouring out of me. I send my first drafts to um, Sofka Zinoviev and Victoria Hislop because they're, they're my ideal readers. You know, they're intelligent but warm-hearted. They're my poetic victims, my first line, really. Intelligent and warm-hearted, as are the listeners of this podcast, hopefully, <laughs> and the readers of your novels. We're talking, taking us down into the trenches and no man's land in the novel. You also take us above the clouds as you describe the exploits of flying aces. The passages really are truly poetic. And how did you set about imagining how it feels to perform stunts in a fighter plane? Did you go up in a plane yourself? No, I was about to go up in a tiger moth and I knew I had a chance to go up in a swordfish, which is a Second World War biplane, but nothing came of these plans. But I, both of my grandfathers were aviators in the First World War. We still got bits of my granddad's sock with camel. And... The, the literature from that time is, is, there's an awful lot of it, and some of it written by very, very good writers. When I was a little boy, I was a complete nerd about biplanes. I used to know the top speed and service ceiling of every single one of them. So why didn't you build your own camel and Well, it's odd you should say up. that, because that is something I want to do. That is something you are going to do. Mm. I felt that in the air. <laughs> Let's hear from the audiobook now. He nips down into a valley of dove-grey shadow and hurtles back out of it. He all but stalls the machine. It hangs on its propeller for a second and then he drops it back down to follow the dunes and ridges. It's like tree-hopping and contour-chasing at altitude. The beauty and clarity is not of this earth. Nothing is more sublime and ineffable than this. He crashes through a white wall into greyness, and sees nothing until he emerges through the other side and realises that he is almost upside down. He goes fully upside down and feels the strap straining against his shoulders. He holds hard onto the spade grip of the joystick because he has no parachute and no one really trusts the straps. He pushes the stick over and then centralises it again so that he does a long vertical turn like a loop on its side and he watches the cloud and the visible patches of earth going round in a circle. He is so high above the devastation that he is beyond the distress of it. The western front is surprisingly narrow. It's a long scar of brown and yellow earth, 
cutting through verdant countryside. It's the right-hand vertical turn that the Huns can't cope with and can't follow. Do it long enough, and they have to give up in despair. The camel is a damned swagger machine. Can you promise me that if you do build your own camel, will you invite me for a ride? Well, they aren't normally two-seaters. There was a two-seater trainer. The there was a two-seater trainer version. If standing on the wing would be very useful because they had a tendency to spin because of the rotary engine. So if you stood on the left wing, that would steady us up beautifully. Okay. And you, as you live in South Norfolk, <laughs> you're flat enough so that if we crash land, I might survive. Now, your next object, if you can call it that, is a cat which is your final object and very different to the ones that we've had so far. And unfortunately, you couldn't bring them into the studio with you. I have two cats. Called? One is called Kamal. The other cat I, I inherited from Elizabeth Jane Howard's brother, Colin, when he died. Jane rang me up and said, would you have his cats? So two cats arrived. The surviving of those two is Basil, who's um, he's actually half Siamese, but he looks like a fluffy um, tabby. And he's a hell of a character. He's totally fearless. He chases Labradors out of the garden. And he every, every morning there's a rat on the carpet, you know. He's very musical. He, he's, he's got a song about how empty his tummy is, and it has at least 72 variations. And are they around you when you're writing? Yes, they, they, love, they, they, they love writing. Basil loves music. He sits on the desk when I'm playing the guitar. Particularly, he likes electric guitar. Occasionally they will walk across the keyboard and reformat what I've been writing. So they obviously make very good writing companions. <laughs> yes. But uh, the rescued kitten in your novel, which is adopted by the family and named Caractacus, mm. I'm now assuming that this is a tribute to your own cats. Is it true? Not, not really. It's, it's just a matter of principle to have animals in my novels, especially a principle to always to have at least one cat. And there's a dog in the book called Bouncer at the beginning. I don't yeah, know if you remember. Some. I do. <laughs> <laughs> I just think I just think animals are such an important part of our lives. They fill up the emotional holes that are left by other human beings. Are you full of emotional holes? I don't think you can get to my age without being full of emotional holes, really. So you've described your writing routine is something that isn't routine. Mm. So have you lived your whole life like that, not doing what you other people have told you to do? You can do that when you're self-employed. Obviously, when I had jobs, such as being a car mechanic or a school teacher, I had to fit in with other people's timetables. Now that I'm self-employed, I, I just I don't need any self-discipline. And when you were a little boy, can you remember what your dream job was? Oh, yes. What was that? My first dream job was to be a cowboy. I, I used to play cowboys and Indians with my friend Gilbert. And um, one day my father came out and said, you know, there aren't any cowboys anymore. Why don't you play soldiers? So Gilbert and I swapped over and played soldiers. And then, amazingly enough, when I was 18, I went to South America, to Colombia, and I worked as a cowboy. So you have made <laughs> your dream come true. Yeah, it was lovely. I had three horses. Would you ever consider writing a western set in South Norfolk? <laughs> Well, what you, you, mean, animals? you mean featuring South Norfolk horsey people? Yes. I think you should ask Jilly Cooper. She'd do a much better job than me. She's not very South Norfolk. No, but she's good on horses. Is she? <laughs> <laughs> How does it feel when you hear your writing brought to life in an audiobook? When I finished this novel and read it through, it was far better than I expected. 
And, and when, when, when I hear when I hear other people reading, you know, especially good actors, yeah. when I hear other people reading it, it, it can actually make me feel tearful. Um, I suppose reading my own prose had, had lost lost its fresh effect, but you hear it again in somebody else's voice is very moving. So the dust that falls from dreams is very much about picking up the pieces after suffering loss and trauma, laying to rest the ghosts of the past building new lives out of the ruins of the old ones. Now, you've said that this novel is to be the first in a trilogy, a family saga that goes up to the 1980s. How far have you already planned the series? I've written the last chapter of the last book, so I know what I'm aiming for. You've written the last chapter of the last book, yeah. but not the two books I've written bits in between. And, I've written bits and pieces of the next two books. I might as well write them all at once. <laughs> But I'm 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 fully prepared to be diverted on the way because your characters never do as you intend. They they start speaking with their own voice and doing their own thing, and it's really very annoying indeed. So you have to lasso them with your cowboy well, training just, skills. Just, you know, you, if a character goes too far astray, you have to invent a new character to take their place. <laughs> <laughs> This brings us to the end of this episode of the Penguin Podcast. Louis, thank you very, very much indeed. You've made my job enormously enjoyable and easy for time swinging by. Thank you. Well, thank you very much. It's been fun. My Name is Lucy Barton is the number one New York Times bestseller from Pulitzer Prize winner Elizabeth Strout. In this extraordinary novel, a simple hospital visit becomes a portal to the most tender relationship of all, the one between mother and daughter. There was a time, and it was many years ago now, when I had to stay in a hospital for almost nine weeks. This was in New York City, and at night, a view of the Chrysler Building, with its geometric brilliance of lights, was directly visible from my bed. During the day, the building's beauty receded, and gradually it became simply one more large structure against a blue sky, and all the city's buildings seemed remote, silent, far away. It was May, and then June, and I remember how I would stand and look out the window at the sidewalk below and watch the young women, my age, in their spring clothes, out on their lunch breaks. I could see their heads moving in conversation, their blouses rippling in the breeze. I thought how, when I got out of the hospital, I would never again walk down the sidewalk without giving thanks for being one of those people. And for many years I did that, I would remember the view from the hospital window and be glad for the sidewalk I was walking on. My Name is Lucy Barton is available now on iTunes and Audible.